0: Hello, and welcome to episode six of
1: The Bible and Me Podcast.
0: This episode is hosted by Nigel Watts, and our guest today is Dr. Andrew Bannister, noted Christian author, apologist, itinerant preacher, and doctor of Islamic studies. The Bible and Me Podcast is a series of exciting, informative interviews with influential men and women of faith, sharing their exciting stories and transformative testimonies of how God's Word has impacted their daily lives.
1: I'm really thrilled to have Dr. Andy Bannister with us this morning. Andy is the director of the Solus Centre for Public Christianity, as well as being an adjunct speaker for Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Andy speaks and teaches regularly throughout the UK, uh, in Canada and the States and the wider world, uh, from churches to universities, business forums, television and radio, he regularly addresses audiences of both Christians and those of all faiths and none on issues relating to faith, culture, politics and society. Uh, Andy, it's great to have you on the programme.
0: Great to uh, be with you Nigel, looking forward to our conversation.
1: So Andy, how did you come to be a follower of
0: Jesus? That's a great question, and uh, like every follower of Jesus, I love uh, love answering that. So my story, um, Nigel, as I was raised in a Christian home, had, well actually have, they're still alive, two wonderful Christian parents, and grew up in a sort of a medium-sized Baptist church uh, in South London. Uh, but like many with that kind of background, uh, it was really my parents' faith, and it wasn't really my faith. And so I think there comes a point where you have to make that decision for yourself to say, yep, Jesus is the person I want to follow. And for me, that happened when I was about 13, sort of going on 14 from, from memory. And it was on a youth camp. I can stumble where it was. It was a, I'd gone away with, a, with the Bible class I was part of. Uh, we were camping. Uh, on the hills overlooking uh, Hastings, down on the south coast. And Actually, I can remember it was a dark and stormy night, like all good stories begin. <laughs> and uh, I forget what the youth, who the youth pastor was that night, I've forgotten his face or who who he was. Forgotten exactly what he preached on, but I can remember that being the moment where I really felt the Lord saying, "Right, are you going to make this your own, or is this going to be Mum and Dad's thing?" And that was the moment I kind of went yes, and uh, went forward, gave my life to Christ, and then probably it took about another two or three years to kind of work through. I think what that meant, I think a lot of Christian kids, again, go through this period, it can take a while to, to bed down and you really figure out what this uh, discipleship thing looks like. But yeah, that, that was me, raising a Christian home and uh, gave my gave my life to Christ as a, as a teenager. And um, kind of one addition to that I, I want to say, actually, you know, one of the things I struggled with as a young Christian particularly my kind of early 20s, was going along to events where, you know, the kind of spectacular testimony would be pre-presented, right? You know, you're nodding, we've all heard these. You know, here's the granny murdering, drug smuggling, former, you know, psychopathic folk music fan and, uh, you know, meets Jesus powerfully and everything is is transformed. I remember sitting there going, oh, gosh, I wish I had a testimony like that. (laughs) And it took me a while to work out that actually... Those of us who've gone through my kind of journey, and there are lots of us, probably people listening to this this podcast, you are, I am, as much a trophy of grace as the former drug murdering, drug ad addicted, granny murdering psychopath. Um, because there are lots of people raised in Christian homes who are no longer following Jesus. My siblings, my brother and sister, would be in that in that category. Ones an atheist, ones an agnostic. Mm. So that tells me that just because you're raised that way, that doesn't mean you've got some cheaper testimony. It is just as dramatic, and it could just as easily have worked out some other way. Wonderful,
1: wonderful. You know, it's so interesting, um, in those formative years, 12, 13, 14, I know that was very significant in my own life as well. Um, Were you actually challenged uh, um, to make a decision at that event? Can you remember at Hastings? Or was it just, uh, you know, were you sort of called forward, or was there there was an invitation to follow Christ? Mm. Was there some direct... Uh,
0: um. it's funny isn't it to go I realize at the grand old age of 44 to go the memory's not what it is but I (laughs) what I vaguely remember is I can remember there was a sort of invitation um to to, to choose and I think there's something powerful about about that about both being forced to make that decision um but also you know encouraging people to make that decision by forced I don't mean sort of manipulating into it I simply mean that I think when you look at the gospels and you look who Jesus is he's he's divisive. We forget this as as, as Christians. Jesus said, oh, I've come to divide, you know, families from one another, mums and dads and siblings and whatever. Not because he himself does that, it's just the decision that you have to come to is he who he claimed to be. And in fact, one of my favourite moments in the Gospels is where, you know, Jesus turns to his disciples there right you know, right in the middle of Mark's gospel, is where that you know the earliest account of that and, and says, Who do you say who do the crowds say that I am? And the disciples give all these various answers, John the Baptist, Elijah and, you know, whatever. And imagine the disciples having a bit of a laugh and go, Oh yeah, Jesus, you never believe it. As, you know, some bloke in, you know, Cana of Galilee thinks she thinks you're Moses. Jesus goes, I can imagine Jesus going, Yeah, 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 very funny, very funny. Oh, um, who do you say that I am? And, of course, that's the moment where all the disciples fall silent. There's lots of embarrassed sort of, you know, shuffling of feet, I imagine. And then finally, it's only Peter has the courage, remember, to stand up and go, well, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And so that question, who do you say that I am, is, I think, one we all need to confront. And so I think it's good to be, you know, when you're preaching, if you're a preacher listening to this, when, you, when you're when you preaching evangelistically, give people the chance to respond mm-hmm. to that. That's the key question. Who do you say that I am? Wonderful. Wonderful.
1: Um, you have a, a background in youth ministry, uh, and then you studied uh, theology and philosophy with a specific focus on Islam. Why, why focus on Islam?
0: It's one of those things that, on um, you know, there are, you could say it's like it was accidental or the providence of God, depending on how you how you read it. Um, so in the early to in, the, in the late 1990s, I was a youth worker working for a group of churches in London, and particularly focusing on high school ministry and building bridges between schools and churches. And hadn't really thought about Islam or theology or any of this kind of stuff. And then one day, a guy came to our church and did a seminar on Muslims. And in particular, described the work he was doing at Speaker's Corner in London to reach Muslims. And Speaker's Corner is part of Hyde Park in London. of known as the world centre of free speech. On a Sunday afternoon, you can stand on a ladder or a soapbox, talk about anything. Religion, politics, sport, get a crowd. And Jay was was using it as a platform to preach to hundreds of Muslims. Because Muslims were going there to preach Islam. So we got talking after his seminar, and he said to me, Well, why don't you come to the Speaker's Corner next week and see what we do? So I thought, Sounds a fair enough idea. Turned up at Marble Arch Tube Station the following Sunday to be met by Jay with two step ladders. I said, Well, why have you brought two? He went, Well, one's for you. I said, I thought you should come and see what we do. He went, Well, the best for you is up a ladder. I went, I've never preached on the street. He went, Oh, it's easy. I went, I've never talked to a Muslim. He went, Oh, they're lovely. And um, that last statement was actually true. They are amazing people. But the first statement, easy, my word, that was, that was wrong. Because the Muslims that day tore my faith to pieces. They threw questions. They threw objections. Stuff I'd never, never even thought about. I remember getting down from the ladder, my head spinning, thinking, maybe I need to become a Muslim. Because they seem to have everything. And I have nothing in the tank. Went home, sort of lay awake that night, fretting about this. And about three in the morning, my long-suffering wife, Astrid, poked me in the ribs. And said, "Why are you tossing and turning, keeping us both awake?" And uh, I told her my story. And her words were her sage advice: "Was why don't you, why don't you read a book? Ideally in the morning, not at 3 a.m. But you know, whatever works." So the following morning, I trotted along to the local Christian bookstore, told them my dilemma, and they said, "Oh, you need apologetics." And I said, "Apolo It sounded like a sort of <laughs> flu remedy. And they took me to this sort of dark, spider-infested, you know, back of the bookstore. And uh, lo and behold, there was all these books about defending the Christian faith. And they sold me a book called uh, *Evidence That Demands a Verdict* by Josh McDowell. And I read it, read more, read other books, more, more, more. Read quite a lot of books over the next three weeks. Went back to Speakers' Corner with answers to every question those Muslims had flung at me. And they had new questions, Nigel. And they made oh. me look stupid all over again. But for this, over the next three months, we do this. I go to Speakers' Corner on the weekend be richly humiliated in public and then study during the week to kind of catch up and over those three months God did a number of really interesting things, he gave me a love of Muslims, I love their passion I love their energy, I love their their questions even, even though they're difficult um, I, I, he gave me a love of apologetics and public evangelism and then he also used Speaker's Corner to show me I was academic, I'd never been to university I was 28, no one in my family had ever been to university, I wouldn't have thought that was for me, but I was devouring books, they were going in, it was sort of uh, sticking so, eventually, Astrid and I felt that the Lord was calling me to theological education. So I went to London Bible College, uh, as it London School of Theology, as it is now, and Europe's largest evangelical seminary. And I picked it really for a couple of reasons. One, I had a friend who'd gone there, but also it had a department of Islamic studies run by a former missionary called Peter Reddell, lovely Australian guy, uh, who's one of my good friends now. And so, so I picked it so I could learn my theology, but also learn how to engage. Muslims. And what was supposed to be three years eventually became 11 years because I eventually ended up doing a PhD as well. Perennial student.
1: Wow, wow, wow. All started because Jay came to your church.
0: All started because Jay Smith. And if you've ever heard of Jay Smith listening to this, stick his name into YouTube or Google. And Jay is a wonderful, passionate evangelist to, to Muslims. And yeah, God used him that day. It's one of those sort of sliding doors moments that, you know, the whole direction of my life changed. because uh, because God used him to introduce me to something I never even contemplated. Amazing.
1: And um, how have your studies um, opened doors for you?
0: Well, it's funny you say that, because having a PhD in Quranic studies does open doors, because people are used to Christians being a reverend or having like a theological degree, but when people find out I've got a PhD in Islam, it opens all kinds of doors. Um, Three in particular, open secular doors. I get a lot of opportunities to do stuff on secular university campuses, because of my academic uh, study. And sometimes those doors are more, they want me to come and present on the work that I've done, but still it's a door. And I believe you can use a door in, in numerous ways. The other, uh, the second door that's been really interesting is I've had opportunities to go and teach in Muslim universities. Um, so a couple of times over the last few years, I've been to Istanbul. And uh, through a sort of long, winding series of connections, I've got a, a friend out there who's a Muslim professor. And on two occasions, first time it was more sort of academic, philosophical stuff, but the second time, um, still within his, he's a philosophy lecturer, so it was still within philosophy, but he asked me to come and speak on the problem of evil from the Christian perspective and the Muslim perspective. And his he signed off with, he said, I'm not convinced the Muslim answer works particularly well. oh this is interesting from a Muslim so we had a great time and incredible opportunity to talk about you know because that question takes you right into the cross and the gospel who Jesus is and he was more than happy Uh, and then obviously the Q&A got quite lively because we had Muslims in the room we had atheists in the room we had some Christians in the room but what an amazing opportunity and the third um place that having a PhD in Islam has, has helped Nigel that I would never have thought about until, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and seeing how the Lord has used it. It's so one of the most common questions I get on university campuses or from secular friends is, you know, isn't Christianity just one option among hundreds, one option among thousands? So haven't you just randomly chosen One option, and now you have the arrogance to say that your way is the only way. I mean, that's rather like saying, you know, there's only what the only music that you should listen to is by Justin Bieber, or something, uh, which would be terrible. Actually, that kind of world, that would be the problem of evil. Um, And uh, but that's quite a good. That's a good question. However, usually the person asking it hasn't studied any of the world's religions. Um, of course, they're often asking it to a Christian who's only looked at one, Christianity. I've got this sort of slightly unique position to go, Well, it's interesting you should ask that question, I say to my friends, because I am a Christian. I've studied Christian theology now for the best part of 20 years, but I've also got my PhD in Islam. So I've studied Islam in huge detail. I've studied the, studied the Quran in Arabic. And I can tell you, based on the study of just those two religions, that they are utterly different on almost any topic you care to imagine. Islam and Christianity differ. So you're forced to. Do possible conclusions. Either Islam is true or Christianity is true or they're both wrong but they can't both be true and so we're now forced to that question. And that PhD in Islamic studies has just been incredibly helpful I think for engaging this kind of pluralistic world that we now find ourselves in.
1: Yeah. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, you are a speaker for the uh, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Um, tell us about your work with that organisation.
0: Yeah, so I got connected with, with with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, with RZAM, through my degree in Islam, actually, in that uh, in the middle of that PhD, uh, RZAM had begun a programme to identify 100 Christians who had or were getting PhDs in Islam, because Ravi had figured out Islam is going to be one of the next big challenges for the Church, and we need to get equipped, and his concern was we weren't. So let's get you know the best people, the brightest people, and the best way to find them is to find them when they're training. So I got a phone call out of the blue from a mutual friend of Ravi and mine to say, hey, would you be interested in coming and doing some stuff with us? And, uh, and that led to closer and closer relationships. And then one day, I was sitting in a meeting in Oxford when one of our international team was talking about RZAM around the world. And he happened to mention the Canada office. Now, this was interesting because when I first met my wife in, on the 1st of April 1997, a very appropriate date, she always reminds me, <laughs> um, one of the first things she told me is that she felt the Lord had called her to Canada. Um, I was the most parochial Brit you could ever hope to imagine, terrified of flying, no intention of leaving the UK, not even on a vacation. In fact, my wife jokes, we didn't even honeymoon in Wales, Scotland or Ireland, we stayed in England. And so every time she mentioned Canada, I would change the subject, I would pour cold water on it, I would just hope it would go away. And When I heard Canada mentioned in the context of ours at a.m., I really did feel as if God was putting a laser beam in my brain going, you need to listen to this boy. I remember going home and telling my wife, and she kind of shrieked with excitement and dropped her coffee mug because it was the first <laughs> time I'd ever said anything positive. And we got us—we uh, reached out to the then director of the Canadian office, got on quite well. The plan was I was going to come and do some speaking alongside him because they were then looking for a second speaker. And then six weeks after we made that connection, he decided he would, he'd quit and went off to become a pastor. And so now they were looking for a main voice. And so in 2010, we went out to Canada. To be the Canadian uh lead team for the um, the Canadian lead for the um, RZIM ministry out there, and for those who don't know Ravi's ministry that well, basically the little catchphrase we use at RZIM is helping the thinker believe and the believer think. So it's evangelism and it's training. We want to engage uh people who have honest questions about Christianity. You know there are a lot of uh, atheists, skeptics, Muslims, people of other faiths who would give you a good reason why they're not a Christian. They have a genuine question. How do we take those questions seriously and show them that actually there are good answers uh, to those questions? And those answers point to Jesus uh, invariably most of the time. So how can we engage the thinking skeptic? And at the same time, how can we equip Christians to be more thoughtful in their faith so they can do the same? And the great thing about apologetics, you can do it at a very academic level. Like, I mean, I've done a PhD, but you don't have to have a PhD. You can just learn to be able to engage people's questions so that when you're talking to your friend at the pub, work, next-door neighbor, they say, oh, you know, what about? And you go, oh, that's a great question, let me... Let me help you think about that. Brilliant. So that's what we do at Azadir.
1: And your your time in Canada, how would you characterize the time that you were there in Canada? Were you there six years? Six
0: years. Absolutely incredible, really, because in those six years, um, I mean, firstly, living abroad is always amazing um, because you see a whole different culture and a whole different perspective on your own. You also get a huge insight into how global God's family is because it's easy to be quite parochial as a Christian, just see, you know, my church or my denomination, or even, you know, British Christianity for those of us in this country. But to get a whole different perspective on a different country and then what the, what God's doing there is amazing. And then just the incredible doors that the Lord opened. I mean I spoke in you know, dozens of universities, business settings. Um, about a year and a half ago a friend and I did a did an event in Canada's second largest mosque. So there were two of us Christians, two Muslim imams, and we uh, took two topic, well, four topics that evening that we both, we all presented on. Then we had Q and A, and the Q and A went for four and a half hours, forty two questions. And there were about a thousand people in the audience, of which maybe about three hundred were Christians, the other seven hundred were Muslims. And you find yourself sort of in those contexts, sort of sharing the gospel, and constantly one sort is of wanting to pinch oneself and go, can't actually believe that I'm here, can't actually believe this is real. Um, so incredible opportunities. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot happening. And I think that's the one of the other things I, I took away from my full-time time at Ars at AM is, again, when we have this narrow horizon of just the church we're in, sometimes we can get a bit despairing. You know, is anything really happening? Is God really at work? And the answer is, oh, my word, yes. All kinds of things happening. It's great fun. Yeah,
1: wonderful. So you come back to the UK in uh, 2016. That's right. Um, now, you're now involved as the director of the Solus Centre for Public um, Christianity what does that involve?
0: Yeah so the Solas Centre for Public Christianity is up in, based up in Scotland based in Dundee and the word Solas says actually um, it's the Gaelic word the Scottish word for sunrise for the idea of the sun rising the light of the gospel and also we thought it was a fun play on words with uh, things like Solas Scriptura that great cry of the reformers um, and ours actually helped plant um, Solas about just over six years ago. And in some ways, it's a sort of Scottish version of ours at It's attempting to take the gospel into the public square, so to the universities, pubs, restaurants, business settings, anywhere we can find a hearing to talk about the big questions of life and show how the gospel and Jesus answer them. And at the same time, we want to equip Christians to do the same Thing and the phrase we use actually we don't use the word apologetics because we find a lot of people are quite confused what it means. So the phrase we use at Solas is persuasive evangelism, and I find that's more compelling because I like to say to Christians, what would you prefer? Would you pers- would you prefer to engage in unpersuasive evangelism or persuasive evangelism? And most people say, well, I I think the latter sounds more interesting. Well, great, that's what we call apologetics, and it's just simply teaching people to do you know to engage with uh, their friends to share Jesus in a way that engages the head. Uh, You know, excites, uh, sets the heart on fire and captures the imagination. And I think if you can can reach the heart, the mind and the imagination, Mm -hmm. uh, you're a good way to to getting people excited Mm -hmm. about the gospel. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're doing up there in Scotland. And I say Scotland, it's sort of the last year or so, it's sort of gone nuts, really, because out of Scotland, it's spread across England and everywhere. So my last year has been incredibly busy. In fact, yeah, you know, it's funny, You know, we're sitting here recording this down in Cornwall, but then two weeks ago, you and I were both up in Scotland. Yeah. An event up there that we were both at. So it's yeah. it's been a busy, a busy it wee it while. It has.
1: And and what is the spiritual temperature in Scotland? Would you say?
0: Well, uh, overall, I guess I you'd characterise it by saying fairly cold. In the, the Scottish society is fairly secular. It's secularised incredibly quickly. Actually, I mean, Scotland for you know for a long time was. You know, considered sort of famous kind of bastion of Christianity, you know, churches everywhere in terms of missionary movement, you know, the Edinburgh, the Edinburgh Conference and, and so forth. And then almost overnight, it seems, a lot of that was shed uh, off. And I think that teaches us an important lesson. I think the reason there was that reaction was I think Christianity had got itself too embedded into the, into the, into the, into the power bases and the power structures and the establishment. And then, of course, what happens is people get sick of the establishment who want to change it, and religion goes with it. And time and time again, Christians make this mistake. We wed ourselves too tightly to the political winds that are blowing, and it's, we've, we've done this across the years, both on right, the right and left of politics. And then suddenly the whole, you know, the culture shifts, and suddenly, oh, gosh, now we're left wondering what the heck happened. So on the one hand, it's quite tough in Scotland. On the other hand... We're in the exciting position that mo- many of the younger folk we uh, engage with are second or perhaps even third generation unchurched. You know, mum and dad weren't Christian, maybe granny and granddad weren't, and sometimes even further back. Which means they're not rejecting it; they just have no idea what it means. And I, I, I mean, it would stagger your mind, um, you know, to, to, to sort of think about. It. You can actually come across Christian uh, people who will tell you with a straight face they don't really know who Jesus was. They maybe have heard the name. If you ask people questions like, you know, what what what's Easter all about, you get incredibly random answers. So, so there's almost no knowledge. Now that's an opportunity, because think about the early Christians in the book of Acts. That was the culture into which they preached the gospel, and it took off like wildfire. So the gospel works, but we need to do some rethinking. Because often in our, in our evangelism, we assume the people we're talking to are biblically bu- are literate, and they're not. Which means you can't throw words around like you know sin, for example, or the scriptures say, or whatever, because people go what, 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 what does that word mean? Um, you know Christians are very fond of speaking this sort of you know whole kind of language of Zion thing that we we joke around and go. We do need to think about how we how we don't change what we believe, we don't water the gospel down, but we do think about how do we engage with people who don't know any of these reference points. Mm. But we've done it before, so we can do it again. Yeah.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, you've written two books I um, have, An yeah. Oral Formulaic Study of the Quran and also The Atheist Who Didn't Exist, which yes. sounds very interesting. Um, tell us about these books.
0: So, it's, <clears throat> two very different, different books, but I can't imagine two more different books actually. I, I, so, um, the first one is based on my academic work and very simply, in my PhD. I developed some computerized some computer software for analysing the Quran linguistically to sort of see if we could discover the building blocks by which it was put together. And the reason that's significant, Muslims believe that the Quran came directly from heaven with no human in- intervention. So they believe the Quran sits there on, from eternity on tablets of stone next to Allah, written by God himself, and then uh, when Muhammad started preaching and teaching in 610 A.D., the angel Gabriel brings that revelation down and sort of pipes it through Muhammad, you know, to the first Muslims. So there's no human involvement. Now, if that argument held held up, if the if you could show the Quran had no human involvement, of course you've got a miracle and Islam is validated. It's my thesis that you can see human fingerprints everywhere. And so that book is the academic demonstration of actually we can show. We can show the tools and the methods and the techniques that Muhammad used to construct the Quran. It's got human fingerprints everywhere. Um, so that was the the academic work, and um, on the one hand it's controversial. On the other hand, you can get away with saying things in academia that you know if you say in a more popular form, people get more annoyed about. And I've had some fascinating conversations with Muslims over the years that I was mentioning earlier. To, uh, you know, Turkey. And one of the first trips I did to that to the to the university in Istanbul that I've spoken at a couple of times. It's interesting. After the seminar, we were walking across the cafeteria for lunch, and I got talking to uh, to a master's student there who'd who'd come to hear me that uh, that morning. And he happened to mention, he said, he said, Andy, you mentioned in the seminar that what you've just spoken about, you know, the philosophy you've just talked us through, wasn't what your PhD was on, what was your PhD on? So I sort of made a sort of sort of general sort of comment about what I did, and he asked a follow-up question, and I, again, I just sort of was a bit gently, and he asked more and more and more. Basically, he teased it out of me, and finally <laughs> I thought, oh, blow it, let's go for it. If I'm going to die, let's at least, you know, uh, go down in a blaze of glory. And uh, But what was interesting, he wasn't offended, he got more and more interested. And after I'd spent our 15 minutes finally mapping out what I'd done and the conclusions I'd drawn, he looked at me thoughtfully when he said, this is really interesting. He said, I've been questioning Islam for a long time. Many of us are. We don't say it very loudly, but many of us are. And he said, you, you have put your finger and fleshed out a, thing, a few things I've noticed in the text of the Quran. This is really interesting. I need to get hold of your book. So I thought, well, that's really, really interesting. So it was never it wasn't designed in one sense to be an apologetic book, but it has apologetic implications. Mm. So that's that book. Mm. On the other hand, the atheist didn't exist is a completely different um, Animal it's a popular book and it grew out of a few years ago um, the, the the movement that's come to be termed the new atheism was really kicking off so that's people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett and others who are writing popular selling books on atheism appearing on TV shows you know YouTube channels you name it I mean Dawkins' book The God Delusion seven million copies that book is has shifted. I always joke Richard Dawkins may not believe in God, but I tell you, I bet his bank manager is down on his knees giving thanks (laughs) to heaven every day uh, for the royalty checks. But so those books making a huge splash. At the same time, there were some Christians responding and some very good responses, but those responses were not really getting picked up. They weren't going viral and they weren't being read by atheists. And so I began sort of of exploring around why. And I actually came to the conclusion, because they're boring. With all due respect to some of my friends, I mean Christians can write quite boring books that are, you know, philosophically brilliant, but not the most entertaining uh, read. I mean that's been true throughout church history. I mean, let's face it, no one reads Calvin's Institutes for a laugh. so I found all kinds of reform people writing in, complaining, out there. so I found myself thinking, could it would it be possible, would it be possible to write a response to the new atheism and its attacks on Christianity that showed how bad their arguments were? That sowed the seeds of introducing the gospel and did it in a way that was funny and fast-moving and such that you could say to your atheist friend, you know, go read this book and actually you'll enjoy it even if you disagree with it. And that turned into The Atheist Didn't Exist and people can find it on Amazon or you can go to the website com, get a free chapter there. And I've been amazed uh, and encouraged, Nigel, how God has used it. I mean, One of my, I've got many stories. My, I think my all-time favorite was at a conference about a year or so ago. Uh, Met a gentleman there who came up to me after I'd spoken, um, introduced himself, thanked me for the book, and then told me the the, the story that had led him to come and speak to me. He said a few months before, his family had organised a kind of family reunion. They'd got all the different generations of the family. They'd rented a kind of villa thing in France and gone there for for a couple of weeks. And he said his sister was among those who came. And he said he said my sister he said was was an atheist. Former Christian, left-wing, Marxist, um, lesbian, I forget, there was one or two other labels in there, hated Christians and everything they stood for. Well, one day, she noticed this book he's reading, he's reading The Atheist Didn't Exist, and she said, oh, what's that? And with sort of fear and trepidation, he told her, and she just grabbed it off and went, oh, load of rubbish, probably. Flicks it open, and apparently in like 15 seconds, is chortling out loud at some joke I'd put in there. So she went, can I, can I borrow this? And he went, well, yeah, I guess so. Well, 36 hours, she returns, having read the whole thing. She's like, this is really good. So, can you get me a couple of copies of my friends? I said, a couple of people, I want to read this. And then he said that we started having a deeper conversation about some of the stuff that was covered in the book. And he said to me, he said, look, he said, I just want to thank you because for 30 years, there hasn't even been the chink of a glint of light in the door. We are, I've now got a foot in the door. It's only a foot, but it's a foot in a door that's been slammed shut, bolted, welded shut, riveted shut for the last 30 years. Mm. And something in there just cracked it open so you know that's my prayer that god would get into to use it in those kind of places it's primarily a book not designed for christians my hope is listeners to this would buy a copy read it have fun with it but then give it away it's designed not to end up sitting on christians bookshelves i want it to sit on non-christians mm. bookshelves
1: Wonderful. have you got any other books in mind
0: or not in mind? uh this dangerous thing to say because people always ask me that and then i sort of you know like all authors <laughs> do go well it's funny you serve actually i'm working uh <laughs> Yes, I've got a few in the uh, um, in the works, and if my uh, literary agent were listening to this, he would be chortling into his coffee, going, "Yeah, and can you crack on and finish them?" <laughs> one of the challenges about being an itinerant kind of speaker is you're always on the road, always speaking, and actually the writing time. But yeah, I've got uh, two or three things. Where, um, the current one I'm working on is um, a, is a response to some of the issues around digital technology. I've got a background in computer science. And I love tech, and um, but you'll be aware we live in this world where we're permanently connected, glued to our phones. All you know, it's always on busy culture. And what I want to do is to use to use that to raise some spiritual questions. I noticed this is interesting. It, it will be slightly in the same ballpark as the atheist didn't exist. That used atheism and humor to open doors. I want to use technology to do so. And the illustration, um, which I imagine a lot of your listeners will will uh, resonate with you know you meet somebody you haven't seen for a while you say how are you and they say "Well, oh, not too bad and you say oh gosh a bit, life's a bit busy now isn't it and they'll, they'll usually go oh yeah it's so busy and then if you say oh it's the email isn't it people go oh isn't it just anybody who's in the world of work knows this phenomenon of your iphone always being full of emails messages you know start, you just can't get away from it and then if you if you you know if you foolishly turn on the internet and start surfing Um, you know, you can suddenly two hours has gone before you know where it's gone. And I think a lot of people are drowning. Um, And it's not that we don't, it's not that we lack information. We live in a culture in which we lack wisdom. There's a difference between wisdom and information. Information is just having the facts. Wisdom is knowing how to navigate those facts and glue them into a bigger story. So that's the kind of area I want to play in. And I want to start from the admission that, you know, probably a year or two ago, I would have definitely called myself a digital addict. And I'm still processing that. I think a lot of us are. So how do we, uh, how do we work our way through that and find, uh, find wisdom, find something deeper? And I want to use that as a way to sort of point people gently to Christ. I mean, Jesus said, come to me, you know, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll, you know, you know my give burdens, you I'll give you rest and my burden is, is light. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are asking, what does that look like mm-hmm. in this digital mm-hmm. busy world?
1: Brilliant. What a great idea.
0: So we'll see. What a great idea. Now you'll be getting emails from my agent saying, yes, tell him to finish. <laughs>
1: I want to move on now to um, the area of the podcast where we talk about the Bible. Yeah. Uh, obviously, you've men- you mentioned that a little bit. Um, <laughs> how important is the
0: Bible to you and why? I think incredibly important because I think all of us have to answer the question, where are, where are our foundations? Because if we don't have any foundations, we live in a culture... Right, that has substituted fact for, for feeling. The, 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 our culture has no foundations. So now people are just wandering around saying, I feel this, I feel the other, and emoting at one another. And that, I think, lies behind a lot of the toxicity that we see in politics and in culture, the reason that people shout at one another on the internet, why they type in capitals at each other, because there's just no foundations anymore. And Christians are not immune from this. It's very tempting to play into my faith is becoming about feelings, my theology just being kind of what works for me, and I think the Bible is crucial because it gives us our foundation for everything. So I think the Bible is crucial. It's absolutely central, and, I, and I, I couldn't be a Christian without it. The only caveat I would put to that is to go, at the same time, remember what the role of Scripture is. The role of Scripture is to point us to, to Christ. You know, we don't worship the Bible. It's important, and it's largely important, actually. Why do I take the Bible seriously? Because Jesus did, but its role is to point us to him. But it's through Scripture that a good deal of how we know Jesus comes about um so yeah it's crucial
1: wonderful and how do you how do you go about studying it yourself uh obviously um as a ministry our heart is to equip yeah. people with skills to study the word but how do you go how do you do that yourself
0: yeah i think one of the things i worked out as a young christian and i try and practice now is you can study scripture on a variety of levels so you can read it devotionally you know perhaps you want, you're reading it sort of sort of fairly quick and fairly light because you want to you know, get some of scripture into your system, you want to perhaps um, you know, see what the Lord is saying to you through a particular passage, but you don't go particularly deep. The next level down for me comes when you take the time to read a little bit more slowly, and you start asking yourself questions, because I love the fact that scripture generates questions. It, I think it's designed to. I mean, the, 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 my, the, I think the best example of this is things like the parables, because the whole point of a parable is Jesus wanted the audience to be going, hang on a minute, what did he say? How does this work? Is that right? And Sometimes I think as Christians, we get almost too precious around Scripture and feel, I can't possibly ask questions of the text. Yes, you can. That's what it's there for. And so, yeah, I'd say the next level down, is not asking questions. What does this word mean? How, how does that hold true? Is this true? Hang on, what is this? what about this and over here? And why is this and so forth? Whatever those questions are, write them down, jot them down and then start pushing down into them. Often the text, if you read them more, read the text more carefully, will answer the questions directly. Yep. Sometimes you may need to read another section of scripture yep. to get an answer. Sometimes you may need to use a resource. You know, I think the next level down is to invest in a good commentary. Um, there's some great one-volume commentaries out there, or a series like The Bible Speaks Today. There's great resources out there. You know, we live in an age where we are spoilt for resources. Um, or you can ask a older, wiser Christian, you know, I'm sure most pastors would actually love people going up to them and say, Pastor, I was studying the Bible last week and yeah. I had this question, a lot of pastors are like, oh, fantastic, people in my congregation are studying scripture. So push down into those questions and really a case of then how far down that, that trail you go, sort of, I, it depends on your abilities, so, you know, some of us are more academic in which case, you know go all the way, eventually end up perhaps learning a little bit of biblical Hebrew or Greek. I mean, it's not as hard as you think. Um, but certainly the first step for me is asking those those questions of the text, wrestling with them, and uh, and digging deeper. Yeah, wonderful,
1: wonderful. I mean, what you're saying about asking questions, and, you know, it resonates very much with um, what we're seeking to encourage people to do as well. You know, the who, what, when, where, why, and how type of questions, and as you ask the questions, the text will give you the answer, and that raises more questions, and so, yeah, uh, fascinating. Uh, do you have a favourite Bible book
0: or character? Do you know that's one of those cheeky questions, isn't it? You sort of pull your cheeky faces, as you ask that, you can't see this listening on the audio. Because to go, <laughs> the trouble is, I always think, how do you narrow it down? But um, I'm going to give a slightly cheeky answer then and say, in terms of Bible book, I'm going to go for two, but they are a two-volume uh, work, and it's Luke Act's. And so, uh, you know, Luke, the physician who accompanied Paul on some of his travels, wrote a two-volume work, right? He wrote the third Gospel, and he also wrote the Book of Acts. And the thing I love about Luke, Luke was a very careful historian. If you read the, read the first four verses of chapter one of Luke's Gospel, he tells you what he does. He talks about going out and uh, you know, assembling sources, looking at what other people had written, interviewing eyewitnesses. And actually, if you compare what Luke puts to those first four verses of his Gospel with the introduction to lots of other Greco-Roman biographies... There's a very similar introduction in the Greco-Roman world. So basically, Paul, uh, Luke rather, is using a, a, a sort of form of words that the audience and the culture would understand. He's basically saying, "I'm a historian. I've checked this out carefully," and then he gives us this carefully researched, carefully constructed, you know, life of Jesus based on you know impeccable eyewitness detail and then of course we push on into the book of Acts and he doesn't just end them with the with the crucifixion and the resurrection he then rolls the story on and we discover what happens in the life of the early church and the book of Acts as a young Christian I absolutely loved it it is a cracking read because it's just so exciting like every page you turn there's something happening there's arrests and persecutions and Stephen gets stoned and like one moment you're thinking oh it's all over it's a disaster and the next page you know the church kind of pushes on and you really get this kind of sense of the electrifyingly exciting times those first Christians must have been living in and seeing God do amazing stuff and the Jesus movement explode out from Jerusalem to become not just this group of 120, but to become you know thousands and then tens of thousands, and then you know within 300 years it had become 50 percent of the Roman Empire. And Luke has the beginning of that story. Mm. And, um, and the other thing I mentioned eyewitnesses, of course, there's little fun bits in, in in Luke. Like if you've never noticed this, for those at home listening to this, look for the point about halfway through the Book of Acts where he suddenly switches from the from into the into the first person we, the we passages. And uh, commentators on the text will tell you that's because the most likely scenario—that's the point at which—that was where he was with Paul on his uh, on his journeys. And so he's no longer he's no longer relying on eyewitness testimony. He is the eyewitness mm-hmm. testimony, and it's beautiful. It's fun when you suddenly notice the, the switch. We did this. We did the other. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. So Luke Acts.
1: Wonderful. And and for those of you that want to get into the book of Luke or Acts, we have got as a ministry two great studies. Uh, the one on Luke is called the Call to Follow Jesus. And the one on Acts is The Holy Spirit Unleashed in You. Great studies and um, you'll be, they're 13 weeks long and you'll be doing sort of 15 to 20 minutes a day home study for six days of the week. But um, yeah, so just uh, there's some resources there if you want to get into that. Um, what about a favourite Bible character?
0: Favourite Bible character, again, it's always hard to, to narrow down because it a lot depends on what I'm speaking on and who I've been studying. But if I had to pick one and just one, I think I would pick Peter. I think I'd pick Peter. I think for a number of, of reasons, as i as I thought about that. Firstly, um, I, mean, I love the Gospels that came out in my previous answer. And uh, our earliest Gospel, Mark, is, according to tradition, you know, associated very closely with Peter. A lot of scholars think it's based upon the, the preaching of, of Peter, and Mark is recording Peter's uh, reminiscences. And actually, you notice when you read the Gospel of Mark how often Peter turns up and how often Peter is spotlighted um, there. So he's closely associated with the, with the Gospel. I also like the fact he is just so, so brash and does exactly the first thing that comes into his mouth. So, you know, he says to Jesus, I'll never deny you, Lord. And then a few chapters later, oh, oh cock-crowing disaster. Um, but, you know, Jesus reinstates him at the end of John's Gospel. And, you know, Jesus had so, had so much time for Peter. Um, you know, it's Peter who, uh, in the middle of Mark's Gospel, we mentioned this earlier, he's the only one who's had the courage. When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? All the other disciples haven't got, haven't got they will bottle it. He's the one who goes, you're the Messiah, mate, you're the Messiah. He says what he thinks. Walking and on water. Walking on water. That's another great one, isn't it? You know, Jesus, like Peter, goes, Oh, call me, I'll come to you, Lord. And I, I'm sure Jesus goes, Yeah, I know how this is going to end, but come on, <laughs> out you come. And he trots across and then splash. Um, and it's easy to knock his faith. And, you know, Jesus just gently poke him. But to go, all the other disciples stayed in that boat. He was the only one uh, who got up. And then, you know, the book of Acts, you know, who's the one who the, the, the spirit has just come, all kinds of chaos going on who is the one who has the courage to step up in front of those crowds and go, no, 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 we're not drunk like you like you men think we are. No, this is something more exciting happening and preaches this great evangelistic sermon on the day of Pentecost and thousands respond. And then the other reason I like him is he was a fisherman and he was just down to earth and a, a beautiful story that illustrates uh, it's a friend of mine and her husband were leading an alpha course, and um, and there's a bunch of them around the table, some Christians and some non-Christians. And they were chatting uh, about stuff, and at one point in the uh, in the conversation, my friend happened to mention that a lot of Jesus' first disciples and first witnesses to the resurrection and so forth were fishermen, like Peter. This bloke opposite across the table stops, interrupts, says, "Hang on, what did what did you say there?" And Amy said, "Well, they they were fishermen." He goes, "Well, okay then, I'm I, I'm ready to become a Christian," and she's like what and he says well i come from a family of fishermen so my dad was a fisherman my grandfather great-grandfather were fishermen i know fishermen you can't you don't mess with fishermen they're like the most down-to-earth straight down the line people you will ever meet if jesus convinced fishermen that he was who he claimed to be then that's it i'm i'm in i remember sort of telling this story to a group of us and go that probably counts as one of the most unusual conversion stories ever and peter's right at the heart of it so i love peter is great. Oh, fantastic, fantastic.
1: And um, just to sort of, by way of conclusion, really, do you have a favourite Bible verse?
0: Well, gosh, that's even harder, and I'm going to be cheeky. I'm going to give you two. I can say i an apologist. We can never give single answer. <laughs> I like to give two perspectives so people can think. Um, first one will be Philippians 1, verse 6. He who has begun a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I love that verse for two reasons. Um, firstly, when I became a Christian in my teens, one of the first crises of faith I had, uh, well, not so much crises of faith, but certainly in terms of you know understanding my faith, was okay. I've got this golden ticket to heaven. That was like the Willy Wonka's golden ticket. That was probably sort of way I kind of viewed becoming a Christian. Um, but I'm going to live for another. I mean, I'm going to be what, 15? now. I might live for another 40 years. I'd be really old. Um, surely the best thing that could happen is the number 13 bus to Peckham turn up, squash me flat. So I'm going to be with Jesus now. I and mean, what's it's a, what's the point of all these decades? What a waste. And of course, I miss something important, which is the Christian life and discipleship. And I think, as the church, we don't talk about that enough. At times, we preach a lot for conversion, but I don't always think we capture people's imagination about discipleship. And, of course, Philippians gets right into this, that process of the Christian life of becoming more and more like the image of Jesus. And sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's tough, because God has to, you know, knock bits off us. And uh, and sometimes his bits are small, and, and sometimes his bits aren't. In fact, there's a famous... Possibly apocryphal, but famous story of Michelangelo, who was once asked, he'd done this beautiful sort of sculpture, I think it was of, a, of an eagle, and somebody said, how do you do this beautiful sculpture, how do you, how do you turn a block of marble into an eagle? And he said, oh, it's easy, I look at the block of marble, and I knock off anything that isn't an eagle. And <laughs> uh, I think with you and I, and you know, those, all of us who are Christians, God looks at us and goes, well, okay, there's a lot on there that isn't Christ-like, so right now the process becomes of just knocking it off. Uh, but we're not. We don't do that unempowered. We do that with the spirit dwelling within us, which is, I think, what Philippians one verse six is getting into. And at the same time, you know, I deal a lot with Muslims, and the Islamic faith really tries to solve the problem of the human condition by law, More, moral law, moral law, moral law. The Quran largely consists of commandments. But the problem is, human beings can't keep commandments. We fail because of sin. Islam's answer to that. Because, well, you've messed up these commandments. Here, have some more, and have some more, and have some more. often said, that's the Islamic approach to life is rather like seeing a man drowning in a, in a swimming pool and saying, here, here, mate, have a bucket of water. Okay. Um, and on top of that, there's no power in Islam. There's no Holy Spirit. There's no sanctification, to use the, the, the theological word. And so I think Philippians 1, verse 6 is unique to the Christian faith. That firstly, because it's your it's what God has done in Christ Jesus that puts us back into relationship with him. And then out of that, transformation happens. But God doesn't go, hey, Nigel, go transform yourself on your own. God goes, here's the Holy Spirit as a down payment. Now I'm going to work with you, mm-hmm. and I'm going to knock off everything that doesn't look like an eagle. Yeah, and the process wonderful. begins. So Philippians 1, verse 6. And then the second one I'd go for is first Peter 3, verse 15, which is every apologist's favorite verse, which is always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. And I think what's so important about that verse is, is, you know, it's easy for us as Christians to think that, you know, Christianity is is all about, you know, my relationship with Jesus, and it becomes purely feelings-driven. And we forget that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with your heart, your mind, and your soul. And you can give reasons for the Christian faith. And reasons are hugely important, because if all we have is feeling and experience. Other people have feelings and experiences. My Muslim friends have feelings and experiences. My Mormon friends will tell you passionately about the burning in the breast and so forth. And if the best we have is, oh, well, i got this feeling about Jesus, we got a problem. But the great thing is we don't. The Christian faith is based on reasons, based on public truth. You know, Paul, Peter on the day of Pentecost and that sermon in Acts 2, he doesn't go, hey, you know, men of Jerusalem, um, I've got this really nice feeling to offer you. He goes, well, let me tell you about Jesus, who was crucified. You know, well, Basically, up on that hill over there, you guys crucified him. But, you know, he didn't stay dead. His tomb is is, is empty, you know. There's David's tomb over there. It's still got his bones in it. Jesus' tomb is empty. This is public truth. People can go check. And Christianity is based on public truth. It's something we can give reasons for. And so 1 Peter 3.15, that commends Christians to give a reason why. When someone says to you, why are you a Christian? 1, 1 Peter 3.15 says, give them a reason. Explain why. And... Uh, as uh, Austin Farrar, who was a really good friend of C.S. Lewis. Most people have heard of C.S. Lewis. One of his best friends at Oxford was a gentleman called Austin Farrar. And Austin said this lovely line. He said, look, arguments can't create Christian faith. You can't argue someone into faith. But arguments and reasons can create a climate in which faith is possible. And I think a lot of people look at Christianity and think, I couldn't even consider the Christian faith because of X, Y, or Z. Well, if we can deal with the X, Y, or Z, clear that, nonsense out of the way so people can see jesus clearly then it's our job to get the heck out of the way and let jesus do his thing
1: andy it has been a real privilege to be great thank with you with you um i think uh, i would love to you know spend many hours talking to you and maybe asking you some questions myself <laughs> but uh you know really pray um that God would continue to use you mightily actually at this time. And, thank you uh, thank you for the investment that you have made over the years in your studying and and clearly the gifts that the Lord has given you. and uh, just uh, it's been a privilege. so thank you so much for
0: being on the program. Well, thanks for the uh, invitation. it's been great talking with you. You have been listening to
1: the Bible and Me podcast
0: by preset Ministries UK if you enjoyed this episode, please click the subscribe button now and consider leaving us a rating or review. If you'd like to learn more about the ministry or make a donation, visit www.precept.org.uk or follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube at Min UK.